to another episode of Truth About Tech. I'm your host, Tori Balachi, and we have a very, very special guest, Garrett Reisman, an astronaut. Um, dude, I'm like so stoked to have you on the show. I've watched you on Joe Rogan, and I just like, you're so humble about what you do. Um, and you just, you're so like kind of chill about it. I mean, you know, I've, I've met some astronauts and, you know, you know, I was like, oh, wow, like you've got, you know, been out in space and, you know, and they're like very serious and like, I've been out seven times, you know, like they get really, <laughs> yeah. really but who, like, but who's oh, counting, right? Yeah. Like really important <laughs> about it. And then I watched you and I'm laughing my head off because just explain the first time you went up to space and saw the earth. What, what was your, what was your feeling? Yeah, it's funny, you know, it's pretty, but uh, it, it's, it's, it looks a lot like what you anticipate, really, because now we have all this great videos and, and photos of the Earth. So, um, you know, it doesn't, it looks like how you expect it to look. And, yeah. and uh, I, expe- I guess my, my expectations were so high, yeah, it was probably impossible for them to be met. And yeah. so I didn't have that same kind of aha moment. And, and people say, oh, they go up and they realize that we're all like, one species living in the same home and that fundamentally the things that make us the same are more important than our differences we're all human beings and it's a great uh sentiment and i don't mean to knock it but i you know i think that should that should be self-evident you shouldn't have to go to space and look back at the earth in order to realize that we're all fundamentally human beings uh and and that uh uh and that we need to be kind to each other and 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 find a way to live sustainably on this planet together so i knew that before i left uh so i didn't i didn't need to go to space to to have that you know driven home <laughs> yeah no i just i love that response because it was just like you would imagine you know a lot of people are never going to have that chance to to see earth and you're just like huh okay there's there's the earth <laughs> i mean it was pretty don't get me wrong it was, gonna it, look- it was really fun to look at it at uh at places on the earth that meant something to me, you know, when we would fly over, uh, you know, I try to find the pyramids uh, and try to take pictures of them or flying over Europe or, or, you know, whatever. And especially like my hometown, I took a picture of my hometown. Oh, that's going cool. to do that from space. Cause I don't know why anybody else would take a picture of Parsippany, New Jersey, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it was all good. Um, now, like when you're out at space, how far away from earth are you? Not that far. So, we were about about 300 kilometers up, um, so it's a little bit uh, around 200 miles or so. Okay. So really, that's that's not far. That's what like LA to Vegas, maybe. Yeah. Um, so it's not. Uh, it, it, it's you know when when um, when the guys went to the moon, you know, and then you're talking about 200 and uh, about 240 thousand miles, about a quarter of a million miles. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a whole different thing. And that's a whole different vantage point. And then you really see the earth as a blue marble floating alone in, in the void, uh, yeah. from, from where we were in the space station, the space shuttle and where, where, you know, William Shatner and, uh, Bezos and Branson and those guys, uh, the altitudes we were all at, uh, you can't see the, the whole earth, but you can see a big chunk of it and you definitely see the, the curvature of the horizon. And, um, yeah. So, so you're you, saying the earth's not flat. Is that what you're trying to? Yes. Yeah. Trying to propagate here is that the Earth? Yeah. I, I've, I've run into people who still believe that the Earth is flat. Uh, and you, yeah. Mean, what do you? <laughs> how do you? How do you deal with that? Well, you know, 
a lot of this uh, conspiracy, you know, it's funny, actually, so talking to you because you've been through all this. And we uh, another astronaut, and I, Mike Massimino, we went around and we were looking to do a reality TV show. So we talked to a lot of reality TV production companies and they all wanted us to talk about that, you know, like UFOs and flat earthers and all this conspiracy theory stuff. And um, uh, what was there's an um, um, Jim Jeffries wanted me to come on a show and like and like Sabbath uh, or, or ambush a flat earther and, and show up. Oh, uh, here's an astronaut, you know, and and, uh, and do all this. And I guess with all this conspiracy and hoax stuff, um, you know, it started in when I was first became an astronaut. It was really directed towards the moon landing. People thought that, the, you know, maybe the moon landing was was a hoax. Right. And, you know, back then, I can almost take it as a compliment because I thought, well, what NASA did was so incredibly improbable and difficult, which it was. I mean, if you think about what what JFK said, when we're going to put a man on the moon, return him safely back to Earth in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hired, you know, when he, when he said that. Um, I put forth that that was a crazier goal, like a, a, a more outlandish or uh, insane uh, overly ambitious or aspirational goal than anything that Elon or Jeff Bezos or Branson has ever said. And that's saying a lot, right? I mean, because those guys get a, a rap for, for, for making these crazy, uh, you know, visions of the future that are wildly ambitious. But, but if you think we had a, a grand total of 15 minutes of flying in space, Alan Shepard's little tiny flight uh, was all we had. And so, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to be on the moon. And, and, and that's, that was just, insane it really was so um so it really was very hard and i and i could kind of understand that people had a hard time wrapping their head around that because it was such an incredible technological accomplishment so when people thought well it had to be a hoax you know i kind of took that as a compliment like wow we did something so amazing that people can't believe it's really true and haha you know but now the problem is now the proliferation of all these conspiracy theories and flat earthers and uh, and it, and 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 then it is crept into our political sphere and our, our and into our life. Now we got anti-vaxxers and uh, people that think that elections were rigged and and all this and and it's it's a cancer. I mean this this uh, uh, conspiracy theory stuff is killing people now, uh, literally. Yeah. And I don't find that funny. I no. don't find anything about that funny. I don't want to go. I don't want to go make fun of a flat earther. I don't want to give them any kind of oxygen. Because I think conspiracy theories are 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 destroying our democracy in a, in yeah. a way, and and well, and well, so because I like I was watching some documentary on I think it was on Netflix. It was about flat earthers, and you know there was this astrophysicist, and she was like, like why why would NASA be trying to trick us that the Earth is round? Like what what point do they have? Like there's literally nothing to gain by tricking people that the Earth is round, and I'm like. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's literally no like, why would you be hiding that from us? I don't get it. But anyway, you know, I, you know no, I love- it's insane. There's no motive, right? Yeah. It's, it's also the other thing I try to explain like the, the fact that the earth is round has allowed us to create a mathematical model of the universe that works, right? And, it, and, and this is not like something we just came up with, right? This is like uh, Kepler and Newton and Galileo way back in the day. All that falls, all that mathematics falls apart if the earth is not 
a sphere. It doesn't work, right? And that would mean, but we relied upon that science and that mathematics in order to get to the moon and to launch rockets and to and to look through telescopes and see you know the other planets and understand their motions everything we understand to understand why the why, why the seasons change and why the earth why the a year is 365 days all that falls out of the mathematics right. so if you're going to tell me okay that's all wrong and we're going to the earth is flat show me your math yeah. show me your fucking math yeah. all right <laughs> you got nothing what you to say that the earth is flat show me then the equations you can that come out of that that allow you to send a probe to mars you can't it cannot be done all right so it's such a load of bullshit and that and that's why i got no i got no patience for it that's obviously now what like what was what were you like as a kid <laughs> uh, I was pretty nerdy. <laughs> because it's like I'm, I'm trying to figure out how does this guy go from like how do you become an astronaut? I'm just curious. What were you like growing up? Were you like a good kid in class? Were you kind of, you know, a, a troublemaker? Um, I wasn't completely clean. Okay, but uh, I was, but I was studious. Yeah, I, I got good grades and I, I worked hard and all that kind of stuff. I took my education very seriously. I was always curious and I was always really into science and math. Um, I was captivated by the idea of spaceflight. I used to watch films of the Apollo missions over and over and, and that really fascinated me. Uh, but it wasn't my career goal necessarily. Like when I was um, in high school, if you asked me what I was gonna be when I grow up, I would not have said astronaut, okay? I might've said doctor or engineer or something, but I had a couple of things. One, I knew it was hard to become an astronaut. And so it was probably not gonna happen. So. I, I didn't I didn't like make that like a serious thing. Like, oh, I'm going to um, I'm going to be an astronaut. That would, I felt that would be kind of presumptuous. Mm -hmm. And then but the other thing was uh, I had a mom who was scared of flying. OK, and I don't I don't mean like flying in like X-16s or F-18s or whatever. I mean, like an airplane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like scared of flying on United. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So so I knew that like. The, 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 uh, and all those guys in those movies, all those Apollo guys were test pilots. And I was like, well, you know, that's just not in the cards. My mom's never going to let me do that. Right. So, so I, I, it was really much later when I was um, in college that I got a hold of some of the bios of the, of the astronauts uh, that NASA had just selected. And, and it dawned on me that they weren't all test pilots and that there were some engineers in there and some scientists and some physicians. And I began to realize that, hey, maybe this is within the realm of possibility. And that's, that was kind of my eureka moment there. The Truth About Tech is brought to you by Turbine, the company that's linking the metaverse with the physical world using the internet of things. Everything from electric vehicles to smart cities to smart grids and digital twins. Turbine is the largest system of sensor data coming from public infrastructure and commercial sources, all highly curated for uses in areas as diverse as augmented reality, insurance calculations, or guiding delivery drones. Check it out at turbine.com. That's T-E-R-B-I-N-E.com. Turbine, we're taking the pulse of the earth. And so there wasn't like, I mean, you said you didn't see yourself as a like as a kid saying, I'm gonna grow up to be an astronaut, but it was when you started discovering that there are other ways to get there. Yes, right. When I discovered that that I, I, I thought that my possibility of becoming an astronaut was blocked because yeah. there's no way I was going to be able to become a test pilot, which I thought was a prerequisite. Right. Yeah. And um, 
you know, I don't mean to equate this, but but it but it kind of shows just like people say talk about how representation matters. And if you can't see yourself in the group of people that are doing a certain thing, it does make it seem like it's impossible and 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 put it put it out of your mind, you 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 know, to the point where you won't even try to accomplish something that you might be capable of. I didn't see anybody that looked like me in those films of the Apollo missions because I didn't they, there weren't any engineers, they were all test pilots. And I wasn't going to be a test pilot, but you can extend that analogy, obviously, to count for other other ways that people don't look like you. And right. and it is important that people, uh, you know, uh, are, are, are not don't feel constrained in, yeah. in what they might reach for just because they don't see people like them doing it. And so once you made that shift in your head where you're like, OK, this is something I could do. What were your next steps? Like, what did you start doing different or what did you? I filled out the application, you know. Is that it? Seriously? Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, I'm still gonna, at that point. So I, I, I knew I knew now that it was within the realm of possibility, but I still knew it was highly unlikely. Okay, I still didn't think it was really going to happen. And so I tried to set an uh, an objective for myself, which was that I was not going to do anything just to try to become an astronaut, because I felt like that would not be logical, right? It, 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 why put a bunch of time and effort into something that is, you know? A tenth of a percent chance of happening, or, or, or you know, something very small. I just did things that I wanted to do anyway, and it turned out that that a lot of the things I wanted to do anyway were good things to help me become an astronaut. I wanted to become a pilot. I wanted to fly airplanes. I wanted to do some scuba diving. I wanted to climb mountains. But I did all those things not because I was trying to put a line on my resume or on my astronaut application. I did it because. I had a real passion for those things. Mm -hmm. And I got advanced degrees in, in engineering and, and I did all that stuff because because I was just I just loved doing those things. And uh, and so I tried and, and, and ironically, that worked, <laughs> you know, because uh, what I found out later was that, uh, you know, that when I was on the other side of the interview table, when I when I be, was I, I served on the on the board that selected astronauts one year and um, when I was on that board, I realized that we, when, when people come in and they're just checking boxes, it's really obvious that they're just trying to fill out their resume because they thought that they need to have all these things to become an astronaut. Right. The truth is we're just looking for really good people and, and we're not looking for, there's no cookie cutter formula to become an astronaut. And it, and it really just it was kind of a turnoff when people come in and say, yeah, I got my pilot's license. And then you talk to them about like, was some cool flying stories or like how much have you been flying lately? And there's nothing there. Right. You know, like, Oh yeah, you got your license just cause you wanted to put it on your application. Okay. Just so you wanted to get accepted. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of backfires, you know, that's interesting. Now, I mean, I, I would imagine you would have to also check their like psychological state of mind, you know, like, you know, you, you don't, I mean, I could see going into space if you're not, mentally sound could mess with somebody pretty good yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, and we've yeah. had people it people have there has been cases where, where people have freaked out up in space and i mean i shouldn't uh, laugh it's not funny but i mean i can I, it's this is something that you're not you know equipped or you nobody, nobody can really equip you for this right you, you can you could do things but yeah i mean basically and so they do look for basic um when I was being selected, they look for basic, you know, psychological issues, diagnosable psychological issues. But that leaves a large swath of the population like me that can still uh, squeak by, you know, <laughs> kind of sneak in. And so it, 
what it really, uh, but there's a lot of things that go on in training that really help you. And, and actually, now that we now that we see like uh, that we're flying these civilians in uh, in space, I, I shouldn't say civilians because I was a civilian when I flew. I, I didn't go into the military. I I didn't even go into the Boy Scouts. By the way, I fell out of the Weeblos. That's true. <laughs> I couldn't take it. All that pressure. You had to get all those. You know, all those. Remember all those badges? You had to get all yeah. those patches. You know. Yeah. Totally. That was too much stress. <laughs> so, so I ne- so I never met to the Boy Scouts, but um. So I was a civilian, so I, it was just a private. We was, now we have all these private individuals flying in space. Right. Um, and that's, you know, this year is really the start of all that. It's, it's really exciting to watch. But there is an issue about anxiety. And it was, there was an interesting study that, they, that the, some of the people at Virgin did. They wanted to see if they can open up the requirements space and have a lot more people certified to go fly in, in Spaceship Two uh a much you know without having these tight constraints on your medical history like could somebody with diabetes go could somebody with certain heart conditions still be go safely so what they did was they got a centrifuge and they signed up a whole bunch of people kind of at random or just people off the street Mm -hmm. to go on a centrifuge ride with different medical conditions not highly screened like we were right and they found that actually there wasn't a problem with any of these different medical conditions but they found something unexpected which was that the big problem they had was with anxiety. People would sign up to do this and, and get into the centrifuge. Uh, and then they would, they would show up on the day of the centrifuge run and they would open the door to the capsule and they would freak out. You yeah. know, they wouldn't get in. Yeah. And they would uh, turn around and, and, and one guy ran into a broom closet. Apparently they had to like, he locked himself in. They had to like get him to open, talk him down. And so it, it's, so that anxiety was, was the biggest uh, obstacle, not, not really anything physical. Yeah. And, and then, so then you're wondering like, well, how is this going to work out as we're starting to take these private individuals? And like, I was watching inspiration four and like, would, would they all, uh, you know, would they be content when they close that hatch or is anybody knocking that door? Like, let me out, you know? Right. And, and I realized something when I watched that mission, the inspiration four mission, I, you know, and, and all the, and I also watched the whole Netflix special that led up to it. Right. And what was interesting about that was they did a lot of these exercises. Was actually, it was one of the things I recommended because I'm still consulting with SpaceX. So one of the things I recommended was to uh, concerning, I was concerned about this anxiety. So I said, you know what? You should take these private astronauts, whatever you want to call them, and, um, and stick them in centrifuges, stick them in uh, small aerobatic airplanes and spin them and, and, and you know, uh, uh, stick them in the suit, which is also can produce uh, induce claustrophobia. And and my thought, what maybe even like a small submersible, take them under the water where they're you know, and put them in real life situations with some operational risk and some confinement and isolation, and see how they do. Yeah. And and I thought of it as a screening exercise. But in watching this the the Netflix thing, and then watching them board uh, the Dragon. What I realized is that it serves a second purpose that we all benefited from too, which is that they bond and through those experiences, you know, they flew fighter jets, they, they climbed Mount Rainier together and slept on the side of the mountain in tents. And they, they go through all this, they, they coalesce and, and they, they bond as a team. Yeah. And then when you're entering that capsule, uh, you're not just entering it yourself, you're entering it with your team and yeah. they've got your back and you don't want to let them down. And it's amazing how much that 
team aspect of it helps you overcome the anxiety. That is interesting. Cause I mean, I'm, I would imagine it's same as like when you're going into war, right? You're, you're really concerned about the person next to you, not letting that person down. But to your point about putting people through those experiences, I, I went on the, you know, acrobatic airplanes and um, I got G locked for an episode of something I was doing. And like when you get that harness put on you and the pressure is put on you and you're in, in a tiny little, you know, cockpit, you freak out for a second. At least I did. You know, it's like, you're like, I'm stuck in here. I need to like quiet my, my brain because my head is going like, oh, I want to rip these things off. And I remember thinking like, if, you know, this is just being in an airplane, if you're out in space, there's really no coming back. You know, I mean, it's like it's going to take you a while to get yeah. back on the ground. Um, that's that's crazy. And so, so how do you foresee? You know, now you got all these billionaires. You got you know Bezos. You got Branson. You got Musk building these kind of these businesses as you know these private sector flights. That I see like there's going to be a whole new problem there. Yeah. So it, it, it's a whole new world, okay? And, and we're just trying to feel our way through it. And I think, I think that the, the very visible way that, that uh, Bezos and Branson did their initial flights with the spotlight purely on them set us back a bit, frankly, uh, because it fed into this narrative of these are just billionaires going on joyrides. And, and that's provoked a real backlash. And especially, you know, there is a big problem with, um, wealth inequality in the whole world and in our country, especially. Um, and, you know, when you had Jeff Bezos up there thanking all the people that worked in the Amazon warehouses, you know, he didn't say this, but like peeing in bottles and everything so that he could go on his rocket ship. That was pretty tone deaf. You know, that was just, <laughs> that was just not good marketing right there. And, and there, there is a lot of backlash, uh, mostly politically on the, on the, on the progressive left side of, of the democratic party saying, you know, Bernie Sanders has said, it. you know, why are we going to give more billions to billionaires to do go do this uh, and, and, and not not raise the minimum wage or and, and you know, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations mentioned Bezos and Branson's spaceflight as an example of what of what ails us and what the UN should should be concerned about. So this is not this is, in my opinion, though, a bit of a false narrative uh, and that in and, and that. We've actually, NASA did this on purpose. This wasn't an accident uh, that uh, it wasn't, or this wasn't an unintended consequence of working with private industry to, to do this. This was by design. So what NASA realized a while back was, hey, you know, we get about one half of 1% of the federal budget and we're not, we're not gonna, unless something crazy happens and aliens are invading or an asteroid is being thrown at us, we're not going to see much more than that. We're not going to go back to the Apollo days. We're not going to see like 10% of the, of the federal budget being spent on space. It's going to, there's support for about one half of 1% and not much more. Right. So, so you know, we got to, we, we got to do more. How can we do more with less? And they realize that, well, you know, it would help a lot if we're not the only ones paying the bill. Hmm. Uh, so what if we, what if we work with private industry and say, you know what, unlike in shuttle or with the Saturn V, We'll work with you. you, you build a new spacecraft and then you can go use it for whatever you want. And if you can find somebody else to pay, pay for additional uses of that vehicle 
And as a result, the U.S. taxpayer, you know, pays less because we can share the cost instead of paying all 100 percent out of NASA's pocket. Great. Please, please go do that. We want you to go do that. And that's what they did. And it's working, you know, uh, for if you look at the commercial crew program and the commercial cargo program, which is um, how we get astronauts, our astronauts up to the space station right now and how we get cargo up to the space station. We're, we're paying, you know, an order of magnitude lower uh, per, per flight uh, or, or just the overall price tag on, on, the, on those programs uh, than it would have been if we would have done a trad- traditional way with NASA paying 100%. And it's, wow. not, it's not that sharing rev- having additional revenue streams from space tourists is the only reason it's cheaper, but, but it's a part of the reason. And so you can, you know, to, the, to progressives that are complaining about billionaires and joyrides and Bernie Sanders being upset about this, I would say you should look at this as a wealth tax. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's really what this is. That's a good way of looking. I mean, it's like they're subsidizing the government now. Right. <laughs> would you would you rather them put their money into developing space travel so that that and it, it bet that benefits the technology that comes out of it and the and the and the revenue that comes out of it benefits NASA, makes NASA's job easier. Would you rather them spend their money that way or go build, you know, or go buy another yacht? Yeah, which which is which is better for the U.S. taxpayer? It, it, it's right. it's uh, uh, you know, it's 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 not as simplistic as the narrative that is popularly conceived out there that this is just billionaires and joyrides make it makes it out to be. That's 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 an interesting point. I you know because you you do think about how it you know it used to we space the space race was such an important thing right you know when we were trying to beat russia to the moon and 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 then it's like over the years it just kind of eroded and there wasn't really this interest in space exploration but now all of a sudden it's like the hot topic and i'm i'm just curious what do you think has caused like now you see all these billionaires it's like a private space race right mm-hmm. And, and why do you think that has, what's inspired that, do you think? I think what's, what's driving, so, so all these guys have a, a very grand vision of, of what they, they would like the future to be. So Elon wants us to be a multi-planetary species so that we're not all, you know, from, for, for nothing less than the survival of the species, so that we don't have all of our eggs in one basket, that if something happens to the earth, that we have people living on Mars, and that if the ships from Earth stop coming, they could keep going. That's sustainable, and and that ensures survival. Uh, so that's that's his vision. Jeff Bezos kind of has a similar vision, but not Mars necessarily. He wants he wants uh, millions of people living in space on artificial worlds that we can create giant space stations, if you will. And also all the heavy he wants to take all the heavy industry and move it off of Earth and move it out into space so that we stop polluting this planet mm-hmm. and that the Earth becomes kind of like one giant national park, uh, which would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, so so they have and Branson has his own idea. So 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 I think what really it's interesting because really, I think what's I motivating them nightclub out there <laughs> a nightclub. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, oh, Branson. Yeah, probably. Right. With some maroon lighting. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some, uh, yeah, I won't, okay, I'll stop right there. But yeah, that, that could be what he has in mind. Um, so yeah, so I think, uh, but I think the other thing that's that's motivating them in, in a funny way is kind of the, the failed promises of Apollo. Uh, and all, all, of the, all three of them, uh, and a lot of us that are in this business, you know, we're motivated by Apollo. Like I mentioned before, I watched films of the Apollo flights over and over. And at that time, 
I was really young. I mean, I was I was less than a year old when Neil and Buzz walked on the moon, but um, uh, or about a year old. But so but uh, so I don't remember it, it, it just, you know, from firsthand. But at the time, the expectation was, well, hey, we're on this path and we're going to keep going. And, you know, OK, we went to the moon. Now we're going to go to Mars we're gonna go to the asteroids. And and, you know, um, you know, 2001 was supposed to be, you know, we're going to Jupiter, right? And that was that was in 2001. Guess what? We're 20 years late now, and we haven't been to Jupiter. So, so there was this kind of collective disappointment yeah. by the people who were really um, fans of space exploration that it kind of petered out because mm-hmm. it was predicated purely on a global political objective, which is just beating the Russians to the moon. Right. And once that happened, the race was over, and right. we kind of just took our ball and went home instead of continuing. And I think that both Elon and and Branson and Bezos felt that sting and they personally wanted, they have the potentially the opportunity to pick up the ball and continue marching downfield. And that's what they're all trying to do. So I think they're all, you know, disappointed that we don't have bases on the moon right now. And that we don't have, we haven't sent anybody to Mars yet. And they want to see us go in that direction. And they're, they're, they're the kind of people that when they get these ideas, they go out and do something about it. Yeah. And you're in a perfect position right now. I mean, like, because w- w- you started working for SpaceX back in what, 2011? That's right. 2011, uh, very early 2011 that is, is when I started. And I worked, I don't work there full time anymore. I worked there full time uh, for seven years. And now I'm a professor at uh, USC. But I still do a little bit of consulting with SpaceX and, and so uh, how did have a lot of friends that, How did that play out? Like what how did you how were you approached by SpaceX? I approached them. Um, okay. so it, it was what, what happened was we were getting ready for my last shuttle mission and it rained in Florida in an, uh, during the afternoon, which you know should have seen that coming <laughs> <laughs> and in the summer, you know, or uh, spring. So uh, anyway, um so all of a sudden it was too soggy. The ground was too wet to drive the crawler with the stack with the space shuttle on it out to the launch pad, which is why we were there. So all of a sudden we had a day off. We had kind of, a, it was like a snow day, it was, I guess a rain day. Yeah. And we unexpectedly had this extra time and they asked us what we wanted to do. And we said, hey, we heard that this company SpaceX has this launch pad over around the corner here. And we'd love to go just check it out. We've heard about it, but we've never, we haven't seen anything firsthand. And so NASA went and said, hey, these astronauts want to come by and, and look at your launch pad. Are you cool with that? And they were like, yeah. So we went and we were astounded by what we saw. Because one, the, 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 one, the one thing that we left, all of us walked away from that tour with a couple unexpected impressions. One was that just the scale of the thing. We kind of had this, you know, it was the common perception back then was these spacex guys were just a bunch of hobbyists yeah working on little tiny rockets in like their garage or something and and it was not anything serious but we saw a real no kidding launch pad with you know with impressive infrastructure and then the other thing we saw was how fast it was all coming together and that was the other thing that astounded us was the, the the speed at which things were getting built and getting done which was compared to what we were used to in the government was was pretty breathtaking. So, so we, we um, so that really opened my eyes. And when I came back from that mission, I, I called up a friend of mine, uh, Ken Bowersox, who was a VP at SpaceX and a, another former nas- astronaut. And I said, uh, you know, 
like to see more. I was really impressed with, with what I saw in Florida. Can I come out to California and see what's going on over there in Hawthorne? And he said, okay. So I, I flew out and he showed me around and I was hooked. Wow. And he tried everything he could to talk me out of it. <laughs> you know? Why? Why do you think? <laughs> well, it, it, it's a big, it, it's, a, it's not easy. It's a, it, was a, it was, first of all, it was a huge cultural change going from NASA, from a government, federal government agency to, a, to um, a company that's got Silicon Valley in its DNA that operates like a startup. Yeah. And, um, and so that was going to be a big, a big like, uh, what transition. Of, what kind of differences? I'm just curious because, you know, you, you say that you saw that he was trying to talk you out of it. When you got there, what differences did you see being at NASA and now being at this private company? Well, I remember I walked in the door that very first day. And there I saw the Froyo bar. <laughs> and you were like, why the government? Yeah, I was like, oh, we didn't have that back in at the Johnson Space Center. <laughs> you mean it's free? I could put sprinkles on it? Uh, yeah. Uh, but in addition to that, um, I guess I would say that the thing that was most markedly different was the decision speed. So we would make a decision and move on at SpaceX in, in, in a week that it would take NASA like a year. Wow. And, 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 and SpaceX was all about moving fast, making a decision and trying it out and not, and, and not being afraid to fail, which also was a huge difference um, yeah. compared to NASA. So after NASA got stung bad, as you would expect, by all the big tragedies, Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia. Sure. sure. And I was there for Columbia and it was, it was horrible. I, mean, I had friends on that, on that mission and uh, that were killed. And, and, and once you experience that, you really never want to have to go through that again. It was horrific. Yeah. But what NASA did was it, it, it just, it, it, the, every time we had one of these accidents, we got a little bit more risk adverse. Right. And, and so NASA was, was the idea was that uh, risk had to be not managed, but eliminated. And when you go down that path of trying to eliminate risk, it really prevents you from, from, from doing much. Right. Uh, and, and so what I saw at SpaceX was kind of uh, a fearless uh, uh, disregard for the potential of failure, that if, if you fail, it's okay. Because the other thing was we were creating opportunities to fail when, when the consequences of failure were low. So if we blow up, a, well, you know, and we, you do it all the time, you know, we, we have these starships that they're building down there in, in Texas and they come back and they, 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 they hit, they, they try to land them and they explode spectacularly. Right. And it's, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, gets a million hits on, on Twitter or whatever. So um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's super exciting, but, but that's, but that's okay because yeah, we blew up a, a big starship, but, but nobody got hurt. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah so and that's, i mean it's when you first said that i was like oh because government bureaucracy that's what's taking so long but i mean it's like if if you had those huge catastrophes it's gonna you're gun shy you're you're you know it's gonna keep you from moving too quickly like you said because it's if you have you know our our, our motto was failure is always an option but in this case if failure happens lives are lost Yes, exactly. And, and, and the problem is that you, you have to be that careful when there are people sitting in the rocket, then everything changes and you have to be extraordinarily careful and paranoid. And our, our chief of um, or our vice president for safety and mission assurance would 
often quote to us that you know only the paranoid survive and and at that point you really have to be very very circumspect but the problem is you get into a uh, you you kind of nasa got to a place where we were applying that level of of uh, vigilance and and timidity which is appropriate when you're launching people nasa ended up applying that all the time even right. to development programs uh, and and where it became where failure uh not only for safety but also for political reasons the concern was hey if this test isn't successful we're not going to get our funding next year right so there's right. that too and so now there, there's a, there's an, an, another anecdote i could tell you that really illustrates this is there was a, a senior uh, a very senior uh official at nasa that was going out to visit a test and they flew, I think, to Yuma, Arizona, to, to Proving Grounds or somewhere. And when they flew all the way there from D.C., they landed, they were told the test was been canceled. And this was just a test they're going to do on some development hardware. Nobody was sitting in it. Nobody was going to get hurt if it went wrong, you know. Um, so I said, OK, well, well why did you cancel the test? And they said, well, we canceled it because we weren't sure what the answer was going to be. And, and, and so testing became something they were so afraid of a failure in testing yeah. that it became something you only did at the very end and what we call a validation test right just to make sure you you got everything right one last final check kind of thing rather than doing it early and quickly to learn testing was no longer about learning and improving testing just became something you did at the very end because it's very visible and you don't want to take any chance of, of it not working. So you wait until you think you figured it all out. And, and but here's the thing, you could you could spend years doing that. Yeah. And still get it wrong. Right. right? And it's like which the way you guys were doing it at SpaceX, it was like almost like exercise. Right. Or it's like you're just doing it over and over. And it's like, oh, we're just like we're failing, but we're getting better each time as opposed to waiting and trying to get it perfect. The, the one time you test it. Precisely. Yeah. Wow. So do you see government, like how is government, are they putting any regulations on the private sector? Oh yeah. So, so there, there are different flavors, if you will, of private spaceflight. Okay. So what you see happening like today with, with Bezos and Blue Origin and, and uh, Captain Kirk going to space, uh, <laughs> That is pure 100% space tourism. So NASA was not involved in, in certifying that rocket. There was no, uh, they didn't have to live up to any NASA requirements. There's none of that. The only thing that they have to go through from a regulatory perspective or a certification is with the FAA, but it's not like how the FAA regulates airplanes. Uh, the FAA's role in regulating the commercial space industry, the private space industry right now is purely to make sure that nobody else gets hurt. So they're not worried about the safety necessary. Well, I'm, I shouldn't say they're not worried about it, but it's not their purview to ensure the safety of Bill Shatner uh, and the other people that are flying on this thing or Jeff Bezos and Branson himself. That's not the FAA's job to make sure that they are safe. The FAA is only there to make sure that as they do this, they don't accidentally crash into uh, a town and hurt people on the ground. Gotcha. So their job is to protect the uninvolved public. And that's it. That's what that's all they have. That's all they do. As opposed to the airliners where they do that. Plus, they also have to protect the passengers that are going into the airliner. But they don't do that yet for uh, private spaceflight. Now, what you see SpaceX doing, however, when we're flying NASA astronauts in Dragon up to the space station, that's different. 
then in that case, we went through an entire NASA certification process, which had all the rigor and was no different than how they've always done it. So that, that went through a NASA certification process, which was required. And those, those same uh, regulations don't necessarily apply like when Inspiration4 flew with Jared Isaacman and, and the others and Haley and Chris and, and Sion. Um, they didn't have to certify to those same, the same rules, but they were flying on a rocket and a spacecraft that had gone through that NASA process and has a NASA stamp of approval. So they benefited tremendously from the rigor of that process. So it's, it's, so it's two different things. If you're flying a NASA with, for NASA, if you're flying a rocket for NASA astronauts, yes, you, you have a government certification process. If you're putting a military or, or a national security payload, like a spy satellite or a GPS satellite, something that the Air Force or the Department of Defense or the National Reconnaissance Office is, is launching into space, then they will come and certify your rocket to make sure they don't put their billion dollar payload on a rocket that's not safe. Gotcha. So it depends on your customer. If your customer is the government, you still have to go through the, then, some, then it is regulated. If uh, your customer is people buying tickets, tourists, then you don't have to go through that process. Gotcha. That's yeah. Cause you would see it. I mean, I can see that as, I mean, it's, it would definitely slow down the process of these private sectors. Um, do you like now that you see all these billionaires getting into the space exploration, how do you think that's going to affect NASA's manned missions? Like, do you think they'll continue to, to push the envelope or are they just going to kind of cruise along like they've been? Well, uh, so it's interesting. So, so <clears throat> the first thing I'll say is what's happening with NASA and SpaceX and NASA and Boeing uh, in the case of Starliner hasn't flown yet, but hopefully they'll, they'll get going before too long. Uh, and, and this is part of this NASA commercial crew program, and that's a public-private partnership. So it's neither 100% private nor 100% government. It is a combination of the two. Uh, and, and, and in that way, it's not all that different from the way it's always been done. I mean, NASA never had a factory that built the space shuttle or built, we didn't have civil servants out there swinging hammers building the Saturn V. You know, that was done by McDonnell Douglas. And even the Chrysler Corporation built part of the Saturn rocket. So, um, so it, it's, it's not all that new. It's just a relation. It, it, it's a tinkering of, of the relationship between the private sector and the public sector. But it's still, it, now it's a partnership rather than a top-down driven, you know, government in charge hiring a contractor to do things to spec. Now it's, now it's the government and the private uh, sector working together as equal partners or near equal partners. So that's, that's different. And, and it's resulted, it's, it's really worked. This model has worked out great. So we've got we've gotten cargo up to the space station, and people up to the space station now, uh, with uh, a bunch of, with with Boeing, with SpaceX, with uh, also uh, Northrop Orbital ATK with a Cygnus cargo vehicle. So we've got multiple rockets capable of carrying people that uh, and and cargo to the space station for a tiny fraction of the, the amount of money that we would normally spend or that we're spending in other programs uh, that are done traditionally. So it's been very successful and I hope that that continues. I hope when you to answer your question, I hope when we go to Mars, we do it the same way in some kind of a public-private partnership because I think really both the government and the, and, and the companies benefit tremendously by combining their strengths and being teammates. 
Uh, I don't know for a fact that's going to happen. There's a, po a possibility that NASA stops doing these public-private partnerships for political reasons. Yeah. There's also the possibility that the private companies say, you know what, we don't need you anymore, NASA, now we're going to go do this ourselves. Right. So there could be a it could be kind of a divorce, but I, I hope not. I hope this marriage keeps going because yeah. I, I do like I do like it as a model. That's, that's interesting. Now, um, this whole William Shatner thing. What, what are your thoughts? Like, how are your just you know from you actually being out in space? Now you're seeing you know just kind of people in, in in the general public going. I mean, he's not you know a general public. He's a public figure, but you know you you just have normal people going up now. What are your thoughts on that? Well, in his in, in this particular case, I think it's great. You know, I'm a, I'm a Trekkie. I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a I'm a big fan. It's uh, this having this happen has allowed all of us nerds out there to boldly go and make all kinds of pathetic jokes. You know, so about uh, it is the people wearing red shirts on the crew and stuff. So I mean, it's like yeah, it's great. Um, and and. Uh, uh, and, and so I'm really happy for him because his approach to this has been really fun to watch. He's he's approached it with both hum humility and awe and and joy and a lot of humor. And I, I like that. I, I really like um, uh, the way he's gone about uh, enjoying this experience that he was fortunate enough to have. So so I, I'm happy for him. I'm, I really am. Uh, and in general, you know, what, what, what's enabled this is. Um, that these vehicles are much more automated than than the vehicles that I flew when I when I went into space, um, especially this one. I mean, th this one today, the, the Blue Origin New Shepard, nobody does anything. It's it's the the, the computers do a hundred. It's, it's all software. Wow. So the only thing you or or that Bill Shatner had to do was take off his seatbelt when the light went on, uh -huh. and then be careful. To, the most importantly, get back in the seat and put the seatbelt on when the light went off. That was that's actually the most critical thing. Because you can hurt yourself if you hit the if you hit the atmosphere and you take the G load and you're not strapped into your seat with your seatbelt on, so that's really the one critical thing. It's not like it wasn't Captain Kirk, you know, firing the photon torpedoes or, or driving the thing. Right. <laughs> In fact, nobody was no nobody on the ship or nobody on the ground. Once the rocket lights up, nobody even on the ground has any control over it. It Whoa. goes off on its pre-programmed, fully automatic trajectory nobody's driving it the, the 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 it's all on autopilot and 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 all the way down to when it's uh sitting on the ground and then somebody's got to open the door and that's it that's the only human involvement really is just somebody's got to open the door it's and 2001 we, space Odyssey, odyssey for real like <laughs> yeah yeah it is except except no there's no disembodied voice talking to you but yeah other than that yeah oh my so God. so so that level of automation uh, means you don't need, not only don't you need to be a test pilot, you don't even need to be an engineer or, um, or somebody good at, you don't even have to be good at math. I mean, anybody could go. And, right. and that's, that's nice because it really does create the potential for, uh, you know, a more democratic approach to space. This podcast is brought to you by Turbine, the company that's linking the physical and digital worlds using the Internet of Things. Turbine is the largest system of sensor data from around the world, powering everything from electric vehicles to improved air quality and self-driving big rigs. Check it out at Turbine.com. That's T-E-R-B-I-N-E.com. Turbine, we're taking the pulse of the earth. Now, being out there, what, like, if this becomes 
I mean, this is going to become a, a reality, right? We're going to have kind of the private sector taking more flights. Um, like, do you see that there needs to be qualifications for being able to go on these flights? Or, or do you see that there will be some kind of a program? Or is it just going to be like boarding a plane to fly from the West Coast to East Coast? I think it's going to be like boarding a plane to fly from the West Coast to the East Coast. I mean, and, and that it already is. I mean, look, uh, Bill Shatner, he's 90. You know? Yeah. He's not exactly out there, you know. <laughs> and by the way, that's another reason I was really happy for him because, boy, does that give us hope, right? Like, like I would love to be in that condition uh, physically and mentally when I'm 90. I mean, I, I would sign up today. Yeah. I, that, that would be fantastic. And, I, I, and he looks great out there. But let's face it. I mean, the guy, is, it's not like he's, out there doing CrossFit, you know. I mean, right. <laughs> I mean, <Right>. so, <laughs> so you be passing the the astronaut fitness test. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen, and 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 that's okay, you know. So that's the point. It, it was like the whole point of designing these vehicles is to allow people to go on there without any qualifications, whether that be technical qualifications to be operational or medical qualifications. Uh, you know, the 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 the. I mean, I spent weeks getting poked and prodded as part of my selection process and to an extent much greater than I ever wanted uh, to, to be deemed medically qualified. And, and, and every year they would check again to make sure that everything's that nothing untoward is happening. Uh, and, and, you know, I got brain MRIs and chest X-rays and CAT scans and all kinds of stuff right. done to me. And, and, and the point is that but that's because I had they they were counting on me to do a job, you know. Right. I had to go up there and do a spacewalk. I had to go just, up there. It wasn't just unbu unbuckling and then rebuckling. No, no, you don't need to get a physical to go on on Southwest. And they, <laughs> they, this is how you buckle your seatbelt, you know. And that's all you need. Here are the emergency exits. That that's it. You're done. And and that's the goal with um with these with it's and it's achieved. It, it it's it's been achieved. And it's not just a goal; it's it's a it's been successfully achieved in the case of Blue Origin and and um, and Virgin Galactic. Now SpaceX, it's a little different though, because at SpaceX we built in some capabilities for the crew. It's still a very highly automated vehicle, and on a good day, Dragon can go all the way up to the space station and come all the way back all on its own without anybody helping uh, on 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 board. In fact, a version of the Dragon, a very similar Dragon spacecraft goes all the way up to the space station with cargo, with nobody inside pushing any buttons or, or, or grabbing a, a control stick or anything, okay? Wow. So obviously it's gotta be work and it's gotta work robustly, but we built into the Dragon capability that on a bad day, if things start going wrong, the crew inside, there are things that the crew inside can do. Okay. Uh, the crew inside could decide that, you know, hey, we're having a depress event, uh, I can't wait Per the flight plan to come home, I'm, I want to come home now and hit That's a big right. red button, basically. They, so they can override it. They can override the automation, and they could they could fly the vehicle um, manually. They can they can power. I, one of the things I insisted on uh, was the ability to just turn the whole thing off and turn it on again. Because what modern piece of electronics doesn't that <laughs> don't you need to do that at some point to fix it, right? And, like it's like so, my internet every few hours. Yeah. So they don't have the kind of, um, you know, fine degree of, of control that we had on the, on the shuttle. On the shuttle, I, I could turn on and off individual fans. I could open individual valves. 
you know, uh, open up a backup manifold if I'm ha or deselect individual thrusters if they're not working. I could do all kinds of things. I could change the gains in the control system. Um, you know, although I never did. I mean, you'd be, you'd be an idiot to do that, but <laughs> but, but you could. Uh, we had we had uh, you could take the stick and fly the thing while it's launching while it's in powered flight. You could do that in the shuttle. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we don't have that kind of you know what we. You have to remember the shuttle was designed in the 70s when we're, our, our abilities with uh, processing speeds and the, on, on the hardware and the, the limitations on the software as well with the limited memory that we had on those machines wouldn't allow us to have this kind. But now it, those limits are, have been long since exceeded and you would never design a ship that was as manually intensive as the space shuttle. You, you would never do that again. Wow, that's crazy. Um... In your lifetime, what do you hope to see with all this space travel? Like, what, like in, like that, in your imagination when you were a kid, whatever you know, what do you hope to see happen in your lifetime? I, I hope to see in my lifetime. I, I want to see uh, people walking around on Mars. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that that's within our grasp, and we should go for it. Awesome. All right, I have one last question for you. I'm not going to ask it, but what is the number one question that people ask you when they talk to you uh, so how do you go to the bathroom that's a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why is that's that so, why, why are people fat poops poop jokes yeah well people want to just people want to know that's that's the number one thing it's uh the the, the big three card that's the number one but the big three are um how do you go to the bathroom did you see any aliens and has anybody done it up in space those are the big three. Oh, that's a good one yeah and what, 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 how about that last one I can answer all three very carefully, uh, very quickly. That uh, how do you go to the bathroom in space? Carefully with great effort. Uh, how have you seen any aliens? No, unless you count the Russians that were over on the the other side of the space station. And then has anybody done it? No, no. To the best of my knowledge, that has not yet happened. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you you are what you've accomplished in your life is incredible. Uh, you just you seem like a very humble, down to earth guy. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> uh, but anyway, thank you so much, Garrett, for for coming on and talking with me. Uh, this well, is it's uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm a big fan of yours. I enjoyed watching you on television, and uh, and so have my so have my kids. So uh, it this is this will uh, make me a a hero in their eyes uh, once they see this. So awesome! Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.